I'm Zach Laycock, an undergraduate physics student at Western Washington University, and you're listening to Spark Science. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion game, ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, this is Regina Barber DeGraff. As many of you know, I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University, and so does friend of the show and NASA Mars rover scientist, Dr. Melissa Rice. You might remember her from such episodes as our very first podcast, review of the film The Martian, and the most recent show on exoplanets. Dr. Melissa Rice and I recently created and taught a science communication course this past spring. The class taught undergraduate and graduate physics and geology students how to communicate with non-scientists and each other. We had the students create podcasts, write letters to Congress, debunk common science myths, and pen a press release and a popular science article. This episode of Spark Science will be the first of two compilations featuring amazing student-made podcasts. Subjects range from science education to research on binary stars to the societal impacts of stepping foot on Mars. I'm really proud of them all and I hope you enjoy listening to their work. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Science Nonfiction. This week's topic is science education, specifically how science education has changed over the last few decades and where it is going. Science ed is something that everyone encounters at some point in their life. It has the power to shape the way that we see the world. But for many, after the age of 18, how we are educating the newest generation of citizens on science is often pushed under the rug. It is my belief that improvements to our science education process at all levels will lead to a more scientifically literate and scientifically respectful culture as a whole. On the show this week, I'll be featuring three different interviews. These guests were chosen because they have very different science backgrounds, but I'll share respect and understanding for education. First up is Megan McCandy. So I am a student at Western Washington University. I study physics and astronomy, and I teach labs here, and I take the telescope out and just show the public our night sky every once in a while. I also interviewed Todd Thaddell, a math and physics teacher at Avanti High School in Olympia, Washington. I became a teacher in uh, 1983, way back when Thriller was the uh, number one album, just to give you a reference of how long it's been. In the 33 years I've taught, I would say two-thirds of that has been in science and a third of that in math. I live in Tumwater, Washington. I currently teach at an alternative high school. I'm a physics teacher, uh, as well as I teach math and computer programming and music. And finally, Jenny Brand, a language, literacy, and cultural studies major here at Western. I'm in the Woodring College of Education. I'm a language, literacy, and cultural studies major, and I'm getting my English language learner endorsement. How much longer do you have at Western? Just a couple more quarters and then three quarters of student teaching. I asked each of them the same set of questions to better compare their thoughts and feelings on science education. First, to give us some background, I asked if they had a positive or negative experience with science during grade school. I think I had a negative experience, and it's probably because of my attitude about it. I don't remember being very kind to my science teachers in high school. I don't remember showing much interest in science class in elementary school. I mean, unless it was hands-on, unless it meant beginning to play with stuff or, you know, whatever, because you're a kid, right? I don't remember doing science in grade school. Keep in mind, that was in the uh, early 60s. So it's not that I I didn't do it. I, uh, I don't remember it being a big focus. During high school, I think it was good. I think the, the middle school elementary age was just weird and confusing. There wasn't a lot of structure to what we were learning. Right. Whereas in the high school, you would take specific classes, right. like biology. And then I actually took AP physics at the high school level, and I really enjoyed it. And I think, honestly, the most connection I ever had with a lot of my professors and my teachers in high school were my science teachers. Right. So they they right. would notice during the winter months, they'd be like, Megan, you've been acting off. 
Did you always sort of know you wanted to do science or was it sort of a decision you made towards the end of high school? I've kind of always considered science. I've relatively always been good at math. Um, I'm dyslexic, and so writing and spelling have just been kind of off the table completely and entirely. From that, I just kind of decided science and math. I'm good at that. I might as well continue looking into it, whatever that looks like. As far as college goes, I didn't start college till I was 22 because I went in the Navy, but I started out as a photography major because I liked taking pictures, but that didn't last long. At the same time, I was taking some botany classes, so I was a botany major for the first two years and, and then got a little bit bored with that. So they recommended I take chemistry because, you know, as a as any science major, you have to have chemistry and physics and all. So I took chemistry and I really fell in love with that and then took physics and fell in more in love with that. By the time now you're talking into my third year of college. And so finally found something I was very passionate about, but didn't have enough time to pursue it. I think that my attitude was affected by my religious upbringing. I can vividly remember moments in church where the leadership would discourage you from learning any scientific content that conflicted with a biblical perspective on certain things. Did you have anybody on the other side of the pendulum who was encouraging you to study science? Yeah, I would say that my dad played a major role in getting me to just get my hands dirty and explore and be a kid. My father was a park ranger, and I spent almost all of my time outside and most of the things that I know now about our temperate environment up here in the Pacific Northwest is because of my dad and, you know, why Douglas fir isn't a true fur and stuff like that. Jenny also shared with me a really awesome story about her first positive experience with science. It wasn't exactly during class, but it was just a really significant time. I remember science being exciting to me for the first time. And it was on a field. It was a field trip. I was in sixth grade, and all the sixth grade classes at my elementary school went to space camp, which was held at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. They simulated a space shuttle and a mission control room, Um, so the classes were split up where one half went to mission control, the other half went to the shuttle, and the mission's control job was to get the shuttle in space. We were going to Mars. Right. And the shuttle's job was to make sure that they got there and survived. And it was pretty exciting because everybody had a different role. I I think we must have spent a month studying all the things that you needed to know for your particular job. Now, to get to the meat of our interview, I asked them what they think works and doesn't work right now in science education. I got two distinct and important answers to this question. First, Jenny and Todd answered this question very similarly. One of the main problems that I'm currently studying and wondering right now is that we, as educators, have a tendency to teach tiny little details rather than focusing on a central concept. I believe it was Feynman that said that knowing the name of a bird in many languages doesn't know you know anything about what the bird does. And that's the most important thing. I sort of felt like I was going down that road in botany. I was spending so much time on memorizing names and how to key things out and learn about what they're called and not enough in the processes. So I'm glad that the science standards sort of finally caught up to the way I teach (sighs) because, you know, I've never been really great at memorizing myself. You can probably remember back in elementary school and you probably remember something about butterflies and their life cycle and you probably got the little butterflies in the cups and then when they were all grown up, you got to free them outside, which was all great and you got to observe that and you got to investigate. Pretty cool stuff. But the point is that you don't want them just memorizing each stage of the life cycle. Although I would say that teaching children that terminology and using the academic language is really important. But you don't want them to walk away just remembering this stage, the butterfly is a larvae, and this stage, it's a pupa. But you want them to remember that all organisms have a life cycle, and it's getting them to interact with a central concept that applies to science in general. It's not just about the terminology. To answer your question, uh, I think what works is that we're looking at science in a in sort of a practical manner now, the way the engineers look at it, the way life and physical science work together. And, you know, so I really sort of like the new standards and how they're trying to weave all that together. But next, Megan also makes a really great point. 
I think there's a big stigma that there are science people and then there's not science people. Right. And they usually call it like math-brained and not math-brained. And I, I think that's something that really causes a lot of trouble. I think what works well is when you can teach students, regardless of what their brain level and their capacity is, that they can be curious and they can explore. And that's really what science is about. Right. It's not about having the tools or being able to pick it up quickly, but whether or not you're interested. I also asked Todd how science education has changed and his teaching has changed during the course of his career as a STEM educator. been quite a drastic change, I think. Right now, it's much more data-driven. Uh, when I first started in the 80s, I, I taught physics, and I trusted the, the textbook uh, authors to cover the proper standards, and I mostly just followed the sequence that I had in the book. Uh, and later, it, I became more confident with the content and then I would find myself reordering a sequence that I thought was more logical. Chemistry teacher, for example, I, you know, I had the students learn how to memorize and how to write chemical compounds well before we did stoichiometry because it just made the language a little bit easier to deal with. So in the old days, I really just think it was rote, memorize, and regurgitate. But now, you know, with the new generation science standards that are out now, it's sort of getting away from pure memorization of content to uh, systems and uh, things like that. And finally, I asked them what they would change, if anything, about the way science is being taught right now. I think I would make it more inclusive for all all different types of people at, at the top level. So right. we think of big names in physics and astronomy. We think of like Bill Nye and we think of Neil deGrasse Tyson and like Carl Sagan. Right. Great, great guys. They're also all guys. To really like spark that change of everybody can study science, it has to start at the top. It has to start with the big names of people who are making a difference. And I think that's just discouraging to a lot of females right from the get-go because if you don't see somebody who who looks like you or has the same color as you in a leadership roles in those positions as educators, then it's more discouraging to not want to pursue mm -hmm. those interests because mm -hmm. why would I want to participate if I'm going to be the one standing out? How do you think that extended into college? Do you think it's gotten better since you've came to Western or do you think it's sort of the same? Surprisingly, at university level, I've had so many more female professors and those mm -hmm. are professors that I look up to the most. I think the field like physics and maybe hopefully science in general is shifting towards more of a balance in that. Um, but I do know it's not always consistent. I went to a conference last fall and I met up some, with some women from a different university and they said they had zero female faculty. And I don't know, I just can't imagine what my life would be like without those badass women physicists who just right. like know the science and they get it and they make it so relatable. And so right. I just find that really empowering to see that here and I hope it continues on. I would emphasize the importance of teaching overall big ideas. Teachers often teach disconnected facts, and it's sort of all jumbled. It's not really making sense. Why am I memorizing this? A lot of kids say, well, when am I going to use this at any other point? Well, I think during grade school, students need to be allowed to investigate their curiosity more. Kids in grade school, they have a natural curiosity about things, and... Uh, they need to be guided on how things work together. And they probably already know that. A lesson that I'm writing right now that is sort of how I would implement this and how it looks mm -hmm. in a curriculum is I'm teaching land and water. I'm having the kids build stream tables and we're studying how runoff affects the land. I'm trying to place a higher emphasis on the practices, meaning having a claim, investigating, observing, creating an argument for your final claim. The overall idea is that erosion takes place over a long period of time, but I don't want them walking away thinking, oh, well, I know what a tributary is. I know what runoff means. They've done the learning process. They're walking away with the main point if you're doing the science practices along with teaching the content. With the help of the relatively new Next Generation Science Standards, science education in the U.S. has been improving enormously. It's a structure that encourages educators to not focus on the facts, but focus on the bigger and more important ideas. But science as a field can still be an unwelcoming place. 
Some students, from the day they step into science class, are put on the back foot because of race or gender or even innate ability. And if we as a country want to improve the way we educate our children in science and in all fields, we must work to make these fields as approachable as possible. This means doing away with archaic stereotypes and standards, and allows students of all kinds to explore the world as they are meant to. Thank you, Jenny, Todd, and Megan for being on my podcast this week and sharing your thoughts and feelings about science education. And also, I'd like to thank Western Washington University for giving me the creative space to create this podcast and KMRE for publishing and giving access to all viewers. And last, I'd like to thank Ben Sound for providing this great royalty-free music that you've been hearing throughout this podcast. Check him out on his website at bensound.com, and you can find all these pieces and more. That's all for this week, everyone. Remember, the line between science fiction and science nonfiction for many children and students are supportive and welcoming science environments where they are encouraged to explore and communicate. Good night. Welcome back to Scientist Eye Interviews. This week we will be learning about some unique research that is going on in the Physics and Astronomy Department at Western Washington University. We are interviewing Dr. Jim Davenport once again as well as undergraduate researcher Riley Clark. Jim and Riley have been working on a research project together for over two years now with the hopes to find a new and simpler way to measure the age of stars. In this interview we will dive deep into their research and learn about stars, solar flares, binary star systems, wide binary star systems, and how the heck are we able to determine the ages of stars. So to get things started, Jim, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your education and career as an astrophysicist? Sure, so yeah, I am a postdoctoral research fellow here at Western Washington, and that means that I'm funded by the NSF to come and do exciting research here in the physics and astronomy department. I got my PhD in 2015 from the University of Washington in Seattle. Before that, I studied San Diego State University in California. Awesome. Down in UW. You know, you're not too far away from home then. No, this is a short move, which was nice. We love the Pacific Northwest. And Riley, could you introduce yourself as well to the listeners and talk a little bit about how you came to be a researcher with Jim? Yeah, so I started uh, the astronomy sequence here at Western, I think a little earlier than most people do. When I was a, I started when I was a sophomore, and I'd always been interested in astronomy. I'll admit it, I, you know, I was kind of a sci-fi geek growing up, right? Super into Star Wars, Star Trek, all that. So, so space is already, already a, a subject of interest. But when I took the astronomy course... You know, it's kind of like a whole new world, like it's realizing how how these really, all these different complex systems that make up this hierarchical structure of the universe actually work. And I thought stars and stellar evolution was one of the more interesting subjects that we, that we learned about. So when I got the chance to, when I was in my junior year and thinking about who I wanted to do research for, you know, there was this new postdoctoral fellow who had just joined the faculty who was doing stuff with stellar flares. I was like, stars, stars are cool. Yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about the research you're working on? You know, what are you guys hoping to find out? Yeah, so right now Jim and I are working on a project involving age activity relationships in wide binary star systems. So this project initially began with teaching so Jim wrote a program called Appaloosa, which basically is a machine learning program that extracts flare information from light curves that we get from the NASA Kepler spacecraft. And so the first kind of work that I did on this project was using a IDL suite called FBI, it's just short for flares by eye, <laughs> and actually uh, clicking on features in the light curve that I thought looked like flares that had this kind of characteristic spike and then energy decay. Gotcha. And by doing this taught Appaloosa what to look for in the light curves. And so then Appaloosa can look at hundreds of thousands of Kepler light curves and extract all that information for us. Then uh, eventually, after I'd done that for a couple months, the project developed into specifically looking at wide binaries because we wanted to think about, okay, so we have this flare information. What do we want to use it for? And wide binaries were a great opportunity. 
a great opportunity to use flare information to try to calibrate stellar ages since wide binaries are believed to be coeval components. And could you quickly explain what a coeval component is? Right, so coeval uh, just means that the both components are of the same, same age. It's widely believed that wide binaries form from the same collapsing molecular cloud, right. uh, which would make them approximately the same age, yeah. And so the reason we're looking at these systems is because one of the unsolved issues in stellar astronomy today is the difficulty in accurately calibrating stellar ages. Now there's a handful of uh, methods that have been used to calibrate stellar ages over the last couple of decades. One of these is called gyrochronology, and this is a relation of the star's rotation period to its age. As just like a, as a, when you spin a top and it gets slower and slower and slower, just like a star, when a star is born, it's spinning very fast and then starts spinning slower and slower and slower huh. as it ages. That's a great analogy. Yeah, so unfortunately this model isn't ideal. It has about a 10% margin of error and we don't always have reliable rotation periods for a star we might be interested in. But we also know that there's a connection between the rotation of the star and its stellar flare activity, its magnetic activity. And so if this connection exists, then our question was, well, if, since flares are so easy to measure, why can't we just use the flare activity as a proxy measurement for the star's age? The age of a star is a really hard thing to measure. And to do that, we're using a new measurement of the star's flare activity rate. So that's what my big project has been over the last couple of years, is measuring these flares from stars. To do that, we're using NASA's Kepler mission, and we're looking for small changes in the brightness of the star over short minutes to hours timescales. So Riley is using uh, what we call wide binary stars, and these are pairs of stars which are separated by um, much larger distances than the Sun and the Earth are separated. These are separated by tens of thousands of times greater distances uh, than the Sun and the Earth are separated. So these stars, you can see both companions. You can see what we call the A and B star uh, in each of these pairs. And we're trying to measure the flare rates between both stars. We have this pair, you know, they're floating around, and they are affecting each other gravitationally as they are in a system with one another. So does that gravitational effect have any overall effect on the activity that's on the surface of the star via, like, solar flares, for instance? And so we think that these stars are too far apart to affect each other, what we would say, tidally. Okay. So the Earth and the Moon are quite close, and the Moon causes tides on the, on the Earth. Uh, if the stars were very close to each other, they would affect tidally each other. Okay. And that would modify the flare rate. We'd expect high flare rates when tidal forces are at work. But these stars are, like I said, they're 10,000 times further apart than the Earth and the Sun are. So at that distance, they're gravitationally bound, in the same way that the Earth and the Sun are, or Pluto is gravitationally bound to the Sun, but they are not tidally interacting. <clears throat> so as a result, we think that the flare rates between these two stars should be the same. Uh, they should roughly flare at about the same frequency, but they won't flare in sync. They, these events are like earthquakes. They're going to be random explosions on the surface. And so to measure accurate flare rates for both of these stars, we need to study both pairs for long periods of time, like years, because like earthquakes, they happen randomly. So you need to get a complete census of all the flare events on both the A and the B star. The flare rates are a parallel way of looking into age. They don't require measuring the rotation periods, but we do use the rotation periods to inform us about what we think the rough age might be for these stars. So that's very interesting. So we've talked about how uh, rotational periods can help determine age, but then there's also, you know, your guys' new measurement where it's the number of flares. And the number of flares, are the, are the, is the number of flares also indicative of star spot activity? Yeah, this is the really interesting part from a physics standpoint. The flares happen on the star pretty close to or at the same spot as the star spots. So both the star spots and the flares are products of what we call magnetic activity. And that is created by magnetic fields deep within the star. And it turns out that the star's rotation actually is what is one of the main drivers of this magnetic activity. So a star that's rapidly rotating is going to be like a magnet that's spinning really fast. You're going to get a lot of complicated magnetic fields, and thus lots of star spots, and also lots of flares. So we have these no, I guess, quote-unquote, normal binaries, and they orbit really close to each other, and then we have these wide binaries that orbit so far apart. What do we know about it? What 
might be causing these binary stars to be so far away? Well, no one has a definitive model for how these uh, wide binaries form. The most widely accepted belief is that during the collapse of the molecular cloud and as the stars are forming, uh, some third star or massive planet comes along and perturbs the system and actually enters an orbit with the two stars and injects angular momentum into the system. And this causes the two stars to gradually drift apart from each other. And it depends on a lot of initial parameters, whether, you know, how massive this perturbing star is, the mass of the two original binaries. And this results in them being separated from, you know, just maybe a couple thousand AU or a couple ten thousand AU. If you find the results that you're looking for and the evidence is clear and it's strong, what is the next step? Well, so far the evidence is really strong that this flare rate is changing and decaying with stellar age. So our early results so far that we're preparing right now from the total Kepler mission seem to indicate that flare rates do in fact evolve with time as we expect, and that's really exciting. What I'm really interested in is to see where Riley's project goes. Now that we have these hundred or so stars that we can test this paradigm, I'm really curious to see how much uniformity we see. The early results from Riley's work are suggesting that most stars in these wide binaries do in fact evolve together. That both the A and the B star have very similar flare rates. Everything seems to make sense with our model. There is, however, a small fraction of stars that don't obey the model, as in one star has really active flare rates and one star doesn't. And that may have really interesting implications in how these wide binaries form. They may not be perfect laboratories after all. We had thought that these stars would be the perfect testing ground for this relationship, but what we found is while some of the stars do obey this relationship just fine, it seems like for a fraction of our sample, some third body is coming in during either during the formation scenario or at some time after that and totally screwing the relationship up by spinning one of the stars up to a rotation period that it shouldn't have at that age. That's quite a finding in, in its own, really. You know, you, you, we have these assumptions that these things are more or less isolated systems, but as you guys are looking into it, having you know, a fraction of that be another unique subset with its own characteristics, that, that could be another project. Yeah, and well, actually, one of the reasons we think that this conclusion is a likely scenario is because when we look at when we look at a lot of the binaries, we see a lot of them actually turn out to be hierarchical triple systems or even higher order systems like quadruple systems. For example, our, our nearest neighbor, Alpha Centauri, is an, a hierarchical triple. There are two stars, Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B, orbiting each other in a, in a tight orbit with a, a low mass third component, Proxima Centauri, orbiting at a much larger orbital distance. So we know that these hierarchical triple systems are pretty common in nature. Uh, so we think it's a plausible scenario that this type of triple interaction could be the culprit for these, this asymmetry in flare rates. We just presented a poster at the Western Washington University Scholars Week. So there were more than 100 posters presented from students around the campus, and Riley's won one of the top honors. So we're really excited with how this project is going and also how Riley's skills as a scientist and scholar are developing. And in about two and a half weeks, we will be flying to California for the NASA Kepler Science Conference, where I'm very excited to see him present this work in front of both the Kepler team and a bunch of our colleagues from around the world. That's super exciting. Wow. Congrats to him and uh, congrats to you. You just listened to our interview with Dr. Jim Davenport, a National Science Foundation postdoc fellow conducting research here at Western Washington University, and Riley Clark, a graduating senior in the Physics and Astronomy Department. I would like to thank both Jim and Riley for speaking with me and sharing their stories. If you would like to contact either of the researchers, you can find their info on the Western Washington University website. The music this episode comes from the artist Marcos H. Bolanos with the song titled Melancholic Kid. Thank you all for listening to Side to Side Interviews, where we bring science-related topics and inquiries to you.
This is Andra Norton, bringing you the first episode of the all-new podcast series, Geologic Intuition. Today's episode is entitled, From Myth to Milestone, How Will Advancements in Mars Research Change Our World? Humanity is known for its creative storytelling devices. People create stories to make sense of phenomena they are not necessarily equipped to explain in the form of myths. For example, the myth of the flat earth was pervasive in the Middle Ages, as well as in the late 19th century and early 20th century. However, after much navigational, cosmological, and scientific advancement, as well as increasingly better public education, the flat earth myth was debunked, making it relatively rare in current society. What could be said about the modern myths we now have in regards to Mars and our solar system? Some believe in conspiracies such as pyramids and faces on Mars. Are conspiracy theories today modern myths? Darian Dixon and Katherine Winchell are students at Western Washington University conducting research under Dr. Melissa Rice. Dr. Rice is currently a participating scientist on NASA's Mars Curiosity rover team who is helping to uncover the mysteries and secrets of our closest planetary neighbor. Darian, a graduate student studying under Dr. Rice, studies the mineralogy of Mars. Catherine is an undergraduate student, mainly involved in further researching data from NASA's Spirit rover. I took a moment to sit down with them to discuss their ongoing research. Can you tell me more about the research you are currently doing on Martian geology? Yeah, so I um, study mineral spectroscopy, and so what that is is materials interact with light in a lot of different ways. Um, materials reflect light, materials absorb light. The reason we see anything at all is because we're seeing light reflecting off of a surface. Something that's blue reflects a lot of blue light. And so what I do is I look at either satellite images or minerals in the lab and I try and constrain the ways, the way um, different landscapes on Mars and different materials in the lab interact with light to help us uh, make assumptions about what we'll see on the surface and give us clues to how better use our instruments to be able to detect um, these sort of things. So where do you want to see the Mars 2020 rover sent? Yeah, so I'm very torn on it. Um, a lot of it is because of those two research projects that I did. There is a lot of really good evidence that there is a hydrothermal system at Gusev. There was one. Um, so it would be really cool to get samples from that one region. Um, there's also a lot of volcanics that are in that area, and that would be useful to get a sample from because with that you can date that part of the surface. Um, but the Mars 2020 rover is not, it's not just a sample collector and nothing else. Um, since we've already set a rover to this area, there will not be any groundbreaking discoveries, most likely. I mean, it could surprise us. We don't know. But we already have a good idea of what the mineral composition is of this area. Whereas if we went go somewhere entirely new, there will be a lot more that can be discovered for the first time by the other instruments that are on the rover. In my opinion, as far as sample return goes, Gusev would be the best place just for sample return. There's three landing sites now, and so I guess, realistically, I have to choose between those three, even though they're <laughs> not my favorites. But out of those three, I would pick a place called Jezero Crater, which is this ancient crater on Mars that at one point was a standing lake. And so there's actually two very clear inlet channels, um, river, uh, preserved river channels that you can see running into the crater. And there's an outlet channel as well, a channel leading out of the crater at this kind of part where the, the wall of the crater was breached, probably knocked over by flooding. And so we see a lot of evidence that this place was infilled with water, it was a standing lake, and at the bottom of the crater um, to the west and north is these two huge old preserved river deltas um, in great shape. You can see a lot of the morphology of river channel, or of deltas, you can see some of the old channels in the delta, you can see different sections of it that we're able to identify, so I think I think it's a pretty cool place because of that. It's a very well-preserved, ancient, wet environment. We know this was a lake. We know it had rivers feeding into it. There's not so much uncertainty as about how it got there. And I think with some of the other sites, there's a lot of uncertainty about why the heck is this stuff there. But here's a place where we clearly see what the ancient environment was. We know what it was. We know there was 
you know, so much water filling up this lake. So I think it's a good place to go just because there's a lot of questions already answered. The spectrometers that we have on the rover, they're, they're amazing. They're really cool instruments. And it's awesome that we're able to take these spectrometers, these instruments that look at how light interacts with the surface and put them on a rover and take them to Mars. It's great. But there's so many limitations of equipment that can operate on a rover. We have crazy cold temperatures on Mars and it's on a machine, it's on a rover that has to, has to power so many instruments. It has to drive, it has to send data back. There's other instruments that do other things. There's limitations of sending the data back um, to Earth. You have to wait for a satellite to pass overhead and then send the data through that and send that back to Earth. So there's limitations in the amount of data you can acquire. And if, if, if we had our way, if these limitations were gone, we would take, you know, pictures all day, every day of tons of stuff all the time with the full capabilities of our instrument. But you can't do that. There's power limitations. There's time limitations. There's a whole host of things that make it difficult to do as much analysis as we want on any given target. So we kind of have to pick and choose and cut our losses sometimes on what we can do. But if you bring something home, there's, there's, there's no limitations if you have that rock in your lab. That rock can live in some NASA researcher's lab for, for years. And I think there's a lot we'd be able to tease out of this stuff that we wouldn't be able to with just a rover. How do you think the discovery of past life on Mars could change the world's view of our place in the universe? <laughs> God, uh, so much. I, I don't know what would happen after that. It would kind of be, it would it'd be mayhem, I think. Uh, hopefully good mayhem. <laughs> But it would, it would rewrite our entire perception of, of life and why we're here, or even if there is a why. We spend so much time philosophically thinking about our existence, and I think humans right now, even, even still in our modern, modern era, we still have a very human-centric view of the universe and view of life, and we still kind of put ourselves in the center of all that there is. Um, even if we don't believe the sun revolves around the earth anymore, still in subtler ways, we put ourselves at the center of everything. And I think it would be a very humbling experience for us. It would be something that would, would change people's perspectives on the universe around them when they realize, hey, a lot of stuff isn't here for us. Maybe none of this is here for us and we're just, we're just a part of it all. And that this life can form elsewhere Maybe it does form elsewhere, and that would just open a whole host of questions about how we conduct ourselves and how we think about the universe around us. I think that that would be one of the most important turning points for human history that's going to make us reevaluate a lot of things, probably change our idea of what life is, or maybe it won't. How has studying geology affected the way you view the world? It's affected the way I view the world a lot um, in a lot of ways from from things just like philosophical connections to the world all the way down to the fact that I litter less. Knowing about how the earth operates and its systems and its history is, is, is really humbling. You realize that everything is kind of a web of processes and nothing exists isolated and so Learning about geology, I now like view myself as more of a citizen of the world, and I have a duty to, in whatever way I can, make sure the things that I'm not doing aren't reverberating and negatively affecting that whole web of processes. And that's something I wouldn't have realized otherwise. Well, it's been really good talking to you today. Thank you for sitting down with me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, you're welcome. How will major breakthroughs, like astronauts stepping on the surface of Mars, or even discovering traces of past life on Mars, change people's view of our place in the universe? With modern social media and technology, the whole world will be watching for the next big discovery on Mars. science enthusiasts. 
I am Megan McCandy, a student at Western Washington University, and I'm here today with a peer of mine, Holly Christensen. She's going to tell us a little about some research she did this last summer where she uses black holes as flashlights to look at ancient galaxies. Along with that, we will get a glimpse of what this experience is like as a female scientist. Hi, Holly. How did you get into studying astronomy? So when I went to college, I wanted to be a biochemist. And I actually did some biochemistry, and I really didn't like it. The context was interesting, but the lab work was just boring. I ended up taking an astronomy elective, and I liked it. So I took another astronomy class, and I liked that, and I just sort of never left. Wow, from wandering into a class for fun to now doing important research on damped alignment alpha galaxies. What exactly are these galaxies, and what makes them so important? So the first thing to know about these galaxies is that they're really far away. Uh, we don't see galaxies like that in the nearby universe. So they're interesting to study because the light that we see from them has taken billions of years to reach us. So you can think of it as sort of like galactic archaeology. When we see the light from those galaxies, we're not seeing it as it is right now. We're seeing that galaxy as it was billions of years ago. So in that sense, it's important for piecing together how the universe has changed over time and how it went from something that it was back then to what it looks like now. The Dan Plyman Alpha Galaxy itself is pretty much just a blob of neutral hydrogen, as far as we know. And we care about neutral hydrogen because that is the stuff that you make stars out of. So if we have these galaxies that are far away, and they have a lot of neutral hydrogen, and then in the more in the nearby universe, we have galaxies that have lots of stars, you can kind of connect the dots and say, okay, that hydrogen probably became stars. But what processes does that happen? You can think of it as a baby galaxy. How did that baby galaxy become something like our Milky Way that has lots of stars, structure, and it's not just a blob? So the reason we don't find these galaxies closer to us is because they're from the past and we can only see distant things from the past? Yeah, that's the thought. So if you have a galaxy that, as far as we know, is just a lot of hydrogen, it's going to go through some processes over billions of years and eventually look different. Um, so the galaxies that we see nearby tend to be, they tend to have a lot of stars, they tend to have some structure. We don't know anything about the structure of these TLAs, so they're baby galaxies. So if you're looking at these big globs of hydrogen gas, how do you detect them? Can we actually see that? Yes and no. So these baby galaxies were discovered in the 1970s, and we still don't really know what their actual structure is. I'm saying blob of hydrogen because that's really what we know about them is that there's a lot of hydrogen. Um, and that's one of the questions I'm trying to answer is, do they have structure? And to do that, we need to see light from them. The trouble is that's really hard. I'm mentioning that hydrogen gas is the stuff you make stars out of, and these galaxies don't have a lot of stars, so they're not very bright. So we didn't actually discover these galaxies by seeing light from them. We actually found them because they absorbed light from something else. If you're looking at, say, a pair of headlights looking at you, you can tell if there's fog between you and that headlight. So we do the same thing in astronomy. We look at some of the brightest objects in the universe. What you notice is that there's some light missing, and it's a lot of light missing. Um, so if you look at how much light you're receiving from these objects at different energies, and there's a chunk missing, that means something was there that absorbed some of that light. And that's literally how these galaxies were discovered, is by what was missing. And knowing that because so much light was missing, there had to be a lot of stuff there. So the damp and alpha part of their name just refers to the type of light that they absorb. So if your research is detecting galaxies like fog through a headlight, what is the headlight that you use? So the headlight is um, a quasar, which is short for quasi-stellar object. And these objects are, again, very distant. And they look kind of like stars, except for they're super far away. So quasars are a type of black hole, and they take in a lot of mass, and they also belch back out a lot of light. And so despite being black holes, they're actually some of the brightest objects in the galaxy. That sounds so counterintuitive to use a black hole as a flashlight. What is the main goal in looking for these galaxies? So there's a couple things I've mentioned about them that tie into this. One is that we don't really know anything about their structure. When you're looking at the light that's missing from one of these quasars, all you can tell is that there's a lot of hydrogen there. So we don't know anything about the structure of these galaxies. So that's my immediate research question, really, is can we characterize the physical properties and structure of these galaxies? 
In terms of a broader context, we're interested in the structure of these galaxies because they're baby galaxies and we think that they become something like our Milky Way. So if we want to understand the processes by which that happens, how it gets from A to B, we need to understand its physical characteristics and its structure. This is like discovering history on a galactic scale. Now, you did all of this during a summer research program. What did you do on a day-to-day basis while there? So I worked with um, Regina Dorgensen, who's the director of astronomy there at the Mitchell Association. And really, I had a lot of freedom. I met with Regina whenever I had something to talk about. And in between meetings, I wrote a lot of code. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of staring at a laptop, to be honest. I find it interesting that you're doing astronomy research, but most of the time you're spent staring at a screen and not at the sky. The thing with astronomy is you take your data, and that takes one night or a few nights or whatever, and then a huge part of it is actually reducing and analyzing the data, taking raw data from the telescope and making it into something you can actually interpret. So the data you work with is from the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, and you were telling me that the observatory uses laser guide star adaptive optics. What exactly is that? So what that means is adjusting your telescope in real time constantly to try and reduce atmospheric effects. And you do that by shooting a laser up at the sky, or you would expect that that laser is a point source. It's just a little point of light on the sky. But because it interacts with the atmosphere, it gets blurred out. And the telescope can actually measure that blurring in real time because it knows that laser should look like compared to what it actually looks like, and it adjusts. So after all of this, did you actually end up finding a galaxy? Yeah, we did. So that was um, in itself like kind of cool. So the thing with these um, with these baby galaxies is you know there's a lot of hydrogen gas right in front of your quasar, but the part that we're actually looking at when we when we do manage to detect it directly is the brightest part of the galaxy, and those two parts are not necessarily in the same place. The part that we've seen in front of the quasar and the brightest part. So the brightest part is probably in the center of the galaxy. And there is some small amount of star formation happening there, which is why we can see it. And so it's sort of a guessing game as to where that is. So there are four sightlines in this project, and I've only fully reduced the one of them, but I think that's the only one where we got a hit. But that was a really fun day. So we got to the part where I had an image that was to the stage we were ready to, to look for a galaxy in it. And I was trying to learn how to use the software. And I was in my advisor's office, and she was like, oh, here, let me show you this trick. And she did it, and this, like, galaxy just popped out. To do this research, Holly, you were selected to go to Massachusetts for this program. Were you the only female undergrad, or were there others there, too? So so I mentioned that the Moran Mitchell Association is... um, named after and dedicated to America's first female professional astronomer. The director of astronomy is currently a woman. And traditionally, the observatory hires six interns every summer. And traditionally, four of them are women. Partially, that's just due to housing reasons, but also to give young women opportunities in astronomy. There's kind of twofold, <laughs> but the latter being the more important reason. So it actually was really great. I'm admittedly used to being in a minority, so it's refreshing. You said that you're used to being in the minority. What is your experience like elsewhere? Well, I guess here at Western, I think the physics major is between 20 and 25% women. It sort of fluctuates. I guess you just get used to being in the minority. And there's something there's something about that experience that I think your male colleagues never quite understand. They don't experience the same, you know, quite the same things. And that's, you know, that's fine. Everyone has their different lived experiences. But it's just different, I guess, to be in a group that's mostly women and talking about physics. But yeah, it can be frustrating. It can raise communication issues or, you know, even just in a like shared study space and people ask their colleagues or friends for input and they sort of just skip over you and you're like, oh, all right. Yeah, it's those kinds of communication issues I think sometimes arise in a group setting. Mm-hmm. At least that's been my experience. And as much as I, you know, like and respect all my male colleagues, sometimes we just see things a different way. Why do you think there's such a huge disparity in the ratio between females to males in the astronomy field? The farther you go up the academic ladder, the fewer and fewer women there are. And I tend to think it's more due to structural issues at the higher levels. You know, if you're a grad student and, I don't know, or a young professor and you have a baby, do you get good maternity leave? 
does it damage your research? Does it damage your collaborations with your peers? Does it, do you have good access to childcare? You know, that kind of thing. When you don't have as many women at the upper levels, the women at the lower, the more junior women are lacking role models and they're lacking mentorship that with people who understand their experiences. Before we're done, do you have any advice for young female scientists out there? So I think what I would say to any young women or folks of any gender identity who are thinking about science or anything else that seems kind of scary, I would say don't count yourself out of things. Don't decide not to do things just because you think that they're hard or you think they're definitely not going to pick me. A lot of the best things that I've done and a lot of the best things that have happened to me have happened because I did something that was scary or that I wasn't sure about. And a lot of them are things that I almost decided not to even apply for or you know, not to put myself out there for. Some of the things that are most personally rewarding and worthwhile to do are things that were hard and things that you thought you couldn't do. It's good to prove yourself wrong. That is some great advice, Holly. And thank you so much for taking out time for this interview. Well, thank you for having me. facility at Western Washington University. The interview was done by Megan McCandy with special guest Holly Christensen and in partnership with Western Washington University and KMRE. I'd like to give a special thank you to Gillicuddy for using their song Springish as long as my friends and housemates who helped me edit this along the way. This is Spark Science, and we'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or KMRE.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you are curious about, post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to SparkScienceNow.com and click on Donate. This show is a collaboration between Spark Radio, KMRE, and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Andrew Norton, and SciComm students Derek Fidel, Zach Lahawk, Andrew Norton, and Megan McAndy. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they could explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.